0: Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks to everybody who became a member of WYPR during our fall membership campaign. We are very grateful for your interest and attention to our work and for your support. Today on Midday, we're going to talk about suicide and what mental health professionals and advocates are doing to prevent it. If you are thinking about suicide, call or text 988. 988- Our program today was recorded earlier, so none of our experts are able to take calls or online comments today. But again, call or text 988 if you need to talk to somebody. Suicide is the 11th leading cause of death in the United States. In 2021, according to the Centers for Disease Control, more than 48,000 people died by suicide. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention estimates that about 1.7 million people attempted suicide that year. A little later in our program, we'll talk about the particular challenges that LGBTQ plus and racial minorities face, and I'll speak with a counselor who oversees the 988 helpline. But we'll begin with the former president of the Maryland chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, Tammy Ginsberg. She joins us on Zoom. Ms. Ginsberg, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And uh, suicide is something that uh, certainly uh, affects you and has affected your family quite directly. When you were in college, your brother uh, took his life. Uh, Tell us about what happened and uh, what happened in the aftermath. Uh, It was
1: 1988. It was a time we really didn't talk about suicide as a health issue. It was more looked at as though something was wrong with the family. It was something to be embarrassed about. We didn't talk about it. My brother was 23 years old. Um, He had been struggling for a while, and we were aware that he was struggling. He had been in and out of hospitals, and he eventually ended up taking his own life. Um, The aftermath, you know, to this day is a little foggy. I was in Maryland. My family lived in Ohio. I went home. Um, I was home for maybe five days. I come from a Jewish family. So we were sitting Shiva. And what I really remember more than anything is just my father really having a hard time even getting out of bed, you know, even interacting with people at all. And you sort of feel like you have to interact with people, you know, in this kind of environment. And so it was crazy because I went back to school, literally, I'm not even sure it was five days, it might have been four days later. And my family just stopped talking about it. We just didn't talk about it. Nobody talked about therapy. Nobody talked about the effect that it was having on any of our mental health. Um, We didn't even talk about him. And it seemed like that was the thing to do. And for me, going back to school, it was even weirder because people knew and they didn't know what to say to me. They didn't know how to approach me. I was angry at the world. So it didn't matter what people said to me, it was the wrong thing. And, um, you know, we just went about our lives until maybe seven eight years later i got married and within a couple months of being married i went into a depression and didn't know what it was or what to do or how to deal with it i was embarrassed you know sort of the same thing uh fortunately i started to learn better and i did seek therapy and psychiatry and um, was able to to continue my journey that then sort of worked its way into me becoming a therapist and working with those that are struggling and those that are suicide loss survivors. And I got involved with AFSP about seven, eight years ago and have been active ever since.
0: And that's, again, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, When it comes to what to say to the survivors of people who've taken their lives, um, what is, if if you had a do-over, if your friends, when you went back to school after this happened, uh, had had a do-over. Um, what's the right thing to say? What is the what is the proper way of broaching the subject?
1: You no, know, if you're, a, it's different. You know, therapists decline as opposed to just a friend. But if you're just a friend and you want to be present for somebody who lost somebody to suicide, you know, it, it's hard because you don't want to ever tell anybody you know how they feel because even if you've had a loss, you don't know how they feel. What you do want to do is just be present. And the most important thing we can do is listen. Just listen to whatever they're saying without judgment, without telling them what we think they should do. Um, The other thing that I think is really important is to identify. You know, a lot of times people will say, oh, let me know if there's anything I can do. Please reach out if there's anything I can do. Well, guess what? I'm traumatized right now, I am grieving, I have no idea what I need or want. So, you know, if you're close with me, for you to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to cook your family dinner Tuesday night. I'm going to get you a cleaning person to come in. You know, Just do, just be there and just do. And that's pretty much, you know, especially in the very beginning, that is the best thing that you can do.
0: And let's dig uh, a little deeper into some of the statistics that the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has uh, made available on a very, very helpful and thorough website. Um, When it comes to people who have, uh, you know, what the medical folks refer to as suicidal ideation, people who are thinking about suicide, um, are there more women than men? How does it break down? Uh, age-wise, generationally-wise, gender-wise? What can you tell us about that?
1: Sure. Uh, As far as ideation, um, I think that, you know, the the, the number is male and female. It's it's hard to get numbers for that kind of thing because it's hard to, 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 we don't do surveys all the time to find out who's having suicidal ideation. But what we do know is that more females than males attempt suicide, more males complete. And that is because males typically choose a more lethal means. And, you know, this whole idea of people attempting suicide as a cry for help, and then we just sort of don't pay any attention to them, has got to stop. Because when somebody is thinking about suicide or somebody makes an attempt, even if it is a cry for help, it's a cry for help, right? They, they need something. We don't go about something like that unless there's something serious going on with our mental health. So we never want to discard somebody as, oh, that person is just, you know, looking for attention. If somebody's doing it to look for attention, they need attention, right? So, so we have to pay attention to every time that somebody mentions that they're thinking about suicide. And people will let you know in their talk, their mood, their behavior, we just have to pay attention
0: and talk about what we should be paying attention to. You mentioned your brother uh, had actually been hospitalized uh, a few times. That's obviously one uh, very sure sign that that he was struggling. But for those who aren't hospitalized, uh, for those whose signs are a little more subtle, what are the what are the warning signs? What are the things that people, can keep an eye out for
1: so people you know in my brother's case he came right out and said it he said I am going to kill myself not everybody will do that um you know he also locked himself in the basement and you know wouldn't come out he he was very obvious not everybody is that way and so sometimes you just have to pay attention if somebody starts to say things to you like I have nothing to live for or I I just feel so helpless and hopeless. Um, if they start to act in a way that just, if somebody's real laid back, typically, and all of a sudden they're on edge, all the time they're snappy, that could be a sign. We never want to say that is definitively a sign because we don't know, but it is a possible sign. Somebody starts acting recklessly. And that's oftentimes because they're not actively suicidal, but you know if you talk to them they would tell you, I don't care if I die, you know that would be okay with me. So it's really important, especially with adolescents to really know your child because adolescents generally um, they, they'll isolate. you know they come home from school, they go up to the room, we don't necessarily know what they're doing in their room. but for a lot of teens, that's normal. they're doing their homework, they're talking to their friends, it's healthy. But sometimes it's not, and we don't know what they're doing up in their room. And they could be looking for a way to hurt themselves. They could be Googling, you know, on the Internet. They could be talking to friends about it. We just don't know. So it's really important to just really know the people in your life so that you know what doesn't seem right.
0: There's also the issue of when it happens, uh, a family member, the, the, the family or close friends, uh, spouses, can feel very guilty, uh, feeling like it's their fault. They didn't see the signs or they didn't intervene in a in an effective way. Um, how do you counsel people uh, who may be having those kinds of feelings if they are survivors of someone who's taken his or her own life?
1: Well, one thing we know for sure is that it's nobody's fault. In, in 95% of cases, there is an underlying mental health issue. Sometimes we're aware of it and sometimes we're not. And by the way, there are times when somebody will take their life and they never, it wasn't that anybody missed anything. They were so good at masking it. You know, you can't mask a broken leg, but you can mask your mental health. And that is when it is the most frustrating. So the first thing that I say to people is, it's not your fault. Now that's easier said, you know, than internalized. But that is the truth, is that if there was something they could do, they would have done it, right? If, if they knew about it, if they could have done something, they would have. So to understand that, you know, you'll have somebody who said, well, but I was working all the time, and maybe I wasn't around enough, and I didn't pay enough attention. It's still not your fault. So, you know, just letting them know, and, and, and it's a process. It, it really is a process. Losing somebody to suicide is different than so many other ways of people dying in that it's there's a lot of questions around it. We don't always know the answers and not everybody leaves a note. So there are times when we're not even sure if it's a suicide. You know, there are many overdoses that we don't know if they're suicides. Um, so it, it's really just letting the person know it's not their fault, and they get to grieve however they need to grieve. They get to feel whatever they need to feel. I'm not here to tell you don't feel guilty or tell you how to feel. I'm just here to let you know it's not your fault. And... Um, you know, and, and then we just continue to process it and process it and process it. But it's a long, it's a, it's a journey. You don't, it's not something you ever get over. You know, it's a journey of healing that lasts forever.
0: Tammy Ginsberg is a former president of the Maryland chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Again, if you are having thoughts of suicide, dial the helpline nine eight eight. You can either call it or text it, and someone will be there to speak with you and offer you help. So, um, Ms. Ginsburg, uh, I interviewed Jamie Raskin, congressman from Maryland, a couple of years ago when he wrote a very profoundly moving book uh, about his career in politics and the suicide of his son, Tommy. And one of the things that he and his wife struggled with, and, and congressman wrote about it so movingly, was they were afraid to bring it up with their son. When they saw signs, when they saw indications that Tommy may have been thinking about suicide, they were afraid to bring it up for fear that it might plant the idea in his head. And I bet that that's not a singular occurrence uh, with families and and loved ones of people uh, who are are thinking about this. Um, Talk about uh, how to talk about what what the right way to bring it up is uh, and, uh, you know, what that can do, the benefits of doing that.
1: It is absolutely imperative that if we think that somebody is struggling or might be thinking about suicide, that we have that conversation. And we do it in private. And we don't we never want to just say directly, I think you're, you know, thinking about this it's more letting them know what you see. You know, I've noticed that you you haven't been, if there's somebody who regularly goes to church, you haven't been at church in four weeks and I'm a little bit concerned about you or I've noticed this or I've noticed that. Start that conversation and then say right out there, are you thinking of hurting yourself? What that does, and we know it from research, it does not put the idea in somebody's mind. If they're already thinking about it, They're already thinking about it. You're not putting the idea in their mind. But what you could do by asking that question is allow them to talk. When somebody is contemplating suicide, oftentimes the thoughts are ruminating and ruminating in circles in their head and they have no way to get it out. You just became a safe person. When you ask them and they felt safe saying to you, yeah, you know what, I I have been thinking about it. And as long as you don't react in a "Mm," kind of way, If you're like, okay, well, tell me more about that. You have just allowed them a safe place to talk about it. You may have just saved a life simply by listening and listening and not interrupting and not giving advice. Just letting them know that you are actively listening to what they said and that it's okay. And it's really important to start normalizing suicide and mental health as health. There is no separation between mental health and physical health they are one health is health and we can talk about it that way and destigmatize it and let people know it's okay to feel whatever they feel, we can really hopefully start to reduce the number of suicide attempts.
0: Tammy Ginsburg is a former president of the Maryland chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Ms Ginsburg, thank you so much for your time and uh, really valuable perspective. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And if you'd like to help the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, there are a number of walks coming up next month. That's how they raise money for continuing their work. There's one in Hagerstown on October 7th. Frederick will have a walk on October 14th on October 21st. There's one in Laurel. And here in Baltimore, there's a walk on October 28th. Again, if you are having suicidal thoughts, call or text 988. There's someone at that number who can listen and who can help. Coming up, a conversation with a psychologist and researcher whose focus is on racial minorities and members of the LGBTQ plus community. Dr. Ethan Marish of the University of Maryland Department of Psychology joins me after a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihala Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. Welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, we're devoting today's show to conversations about what mental health professionals and advocates are doing to prevent suicide. If you are thinking about suicide or if you're facing challenges that are difficult to cope with, call or text 988. That's a helpline where you can talk things through with people who will listen and who can direct you to resources if you need them. Our program today was pre-recorded, so we aren't taking any calls or online comments on today's show. My next guest is Dr. Ethan Marish. He's an associate professor and the director of the Lavender Lab in the Department of Psychology at the University of Maryland, College Park. His work focuses on people of color and members of the LGBTQ community. Dr. Marish joins us on Zoom. Welcome to the show. Thanks for your time.
2: Thanks for having me, Tom.
0: So tell us about the Lavender Lab. What's the kind of work that you all are involved in?
2: Yeah, the Lavender Lab uh, is a research lab at the University of Maryland in the Department of Psychology. We focus on understanding health disparities that LGBTQ people and people of color experience, Uh, for example, suicide. Uh, And we try to identify factors that help us understand, risk factors that help us understand why LGBTQ people may be at greater risk for suicide or why uh, certain racial ethnic minorities might have higher risk for suicide. Um, And we also try to identify through our research protective factors that could help um, potentially reduce suicide risk among those populations.
0: So talk about some of the particular risks that uh, are are prevalent in the LGBTQ plus and uh,
2: racial minority communities. Absolutely. Um, First, just to highlight, uh, uh, just bringing some stats to share with you, uh, in in Maryland, for example, just to kind of highlight how severe this problem is uh, when we're talking about suicide, especially for LGBTQ youth. Um, So in the state of Maryland, uh, they uh, conduct a survey of youth uh, pretty regularly, I think every other year. Uh, and, and it's a survey of high school and middle school, adoles- uh, high school and middle schoolers uh, across the state. And um, these surveys consistently show that lesbian, gay, bisexual adolescents are almost three times greater, have a three times greater risk for suicide compared to their heterosexual peers. So for example, um, just in their 2021 survey, 42% of LGB high schoolers in the state of Maryland considered seriously considered suicide in the past year versus 14% of heterosexual high schoolers. Wow. That's a, that a,
0: how, that's a huge disparity, isn't it? Yeah. 42% it of 14. Wow. Mm-hmm.
2: Exactly, yeah. So it's pretty dramatic uh, and and very, very concerning. Um, And so going back to your question in terms of what are some risk factors, we know from decades of research stigma that LGBTQ youth experience related to uh, their their sexual identity or gender identity. Uh, so, you know, from uh, bullying, harassment, discrimination, microaggressions that are homophobic or transphobic, we know those uh, serve as risk factors for suicide. Um, and uh, stigma also um, exists in, in the school in terms of creating lack of safety in school environments. Uh, and and that can also be internalized uh, and, and become a risk factor for suicide and poor mental health outcomes. Um, so, so typically, we think about experiences of stigma or oppression as a source of stress. And these stressors serve as a risk factor for suicidality for LGBTQ youth and also for uh, youth of color. Dr. Ethan Marish is a
0: clinical psychologist and an associate professor and the director of the Lavender Lab in the Department of Psychology at the University of Maryland, College Park. We are talking about suicide today and preventing suicide. If you are having suicidal thoughts, call or text 988. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Our program was prerecorded, so we're not able to take any calls or online comments during this show. So, Dr. Marish, I'm interested in how one studies this. Um, it, it's, uh, it's different than a pollster calling up and saying, you know, who are you going to vote for? We can, we can put the, the, the numbers to that pretty pretty easily and pretty quickly. How do you go about uh, understanding the challenges that the LGBTQ plus community have? Uh, and And how do you sort of, you know, do qualitative and quantitative analysis of it?
2: Yeah, as you noted, there are multiple methods that researchers use to understand, assess um, and intervene with suicidality uh, among among their participants. Um, so in our research, we use a, a mix of different methods. Uh, so we have used qualitative methods where we actually do interviews with, with youth uh, to try to understand not just if they're feeling suicidal, but really going in depth to understand their emotional experience and and what's leading, what's underlying their suicidality, what's the pain that's causing, what's causing the pain to lead to suicidality. Um, so interviews is one method. Uh, I, in my lab, we also use uh, survey research where we um, have uh, participants complete surveys that ask about suicide and other factors. Um, and more recently, my lab has been using daily diary research, um, uh, daily diary research methods, where we have um, participants take a brief survey every day, uh, where we ask them about uh, their day, how they felt that day, stressors they experienced, as well as if they felt suicidal that day. Um, so, so those are just some examples of how we assess, assess and understand suicide.
0: What is the best what are the best practices for treatment of somebody who is thinking about suicide? When you get to that point, um, uh, you're a clinical psychologist, you see patients, and then you do all of this research. Um, What does the data say about the best way to treat folks uh, who are struggling in that way?
2: Yeah, um, thankfully, we do know that there are efficacious treatments out there that can really make a difference uh, in people's lives and reducing their suicidality. Um, I think Tammy mentioned some really great ones, sort of outside of as great interventions that can exist outside of a treatment session. Um, but if, if someone is meeting with a therapist um, or a, of of some sort, either a psychologist, social worker, or other mental health professional, um, there are different approaches that can can be used. First, um, is we we uh, thoroughly assess uh, sociability to understand uh, its severity, uh, its sort of. Someone could have a thought of suicide, but doesn't mean they're in a attempt suicide. Uh, so, so part of the work is first just to have a thorough assessment of how uh, the, of imminent risk um, and related to suicide. Once that's uh, completed, uh, that assessment's completed. Uh, typically mental health counselors will then want to understand um, risk factors and underlying and the underlying factors that are leading to suicide and that often becomes a big uh, focus of of treatment or interventions in a therapeutic context uh, given that uh, there's usually underlying factors that make someone feel suicidal like like depression or other mental health conditions um the other piece is is creating uh, a uh, a, a safety plan with with clients and patients. Uh, so sort of uh, thinking about who they can go to for help if they're feeling suicidal, what can they do in the moment if they're feeling suicidal, who can they call a helpline, what uh, skills they could use to manage and help them regulate their difficult emotions uh, to help prevent them from acting on their thoughts of suicide. Um, and if, if someone is um, feeling very suicidal and unsafe and might have a uh, a plan or a method um then uh, maybe uh stepping up their level of care to maybe uh, going to a psychiatric hospitalization might be more appropriate depending on what what a person is presenting with
0: but the, the the fundamental uh importance of talking and talk therapy uh, can't be stressed enough it seems i mean and because these you know mental health professionals like yourself have to make determinations i mean if someone says I don't feel like living anymore. That's maybe different than that person actually having a plan to take her own life. Um, And you have to be able to, to parse the differences and, and, and understand it. That's a, that can be a tricky conversation, which is why uh, it needs to be had with a professional.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Um, I think it's, it's an important conversation to be had with friends, family members, um, anyone who can be a good support, because uh, as as Tammy mentioned, it's so important um, to be able to give space for people who may be feeling suicidal uh, and really affirm and validate their feelings. Um, and so similarly in therapy, uh, um, uh, mental health counselors or, or therapists do that as well as uh, really, as you said, understand the, um, the extent of severity of, some, of, of someone's suicidality. So if they are um, how much they're thinking about it every day, um, and and the, the the type of thoughts that they're having, the the, the potential methods that they may be considering, um, and even a plan. Uh, and you know, as and as that risk level increases, trying to think through ways to um, reduce that risk and make sure someone is feeling is safe uh, is ultimately the goal. Um, and 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 as I mentioned, so. Um, then the the part of the work is to really understand the underlying problems that are leading to suicidality and treating those, if that's depression, if if that's another mental health issue, anxiety, uh, whatever it might be, trauma, uh, really dealing with that. Um, And then, and and part of that is also helping an individual um, identify reasons for living uh, and actively working to resist those urges of suicide.
0: What's the key to prevention? Uh, Obviously, it's going to happen in a number of different ways and uh, from a number of different sources. Uh, What's top of mind for you when it comes to ideas, public policy, uh, what uh, the medical community can do, what communities can do to
2: prevent suicide? I think that's a great question. Um, There are a lot of factors that we know work well for prevention. uh, at a at basic level, is, is screening for it. So actually asking the questions. Uh, so that might be for um, uh, a young teen or a child going to, with their with their parent to uh, their pediatrician, and so having you. Um, routine screenings for suicide as part of their visit while they're waiting in the waiting room. Uh, if someone's going to the ER, having uh, routine screenings of everyone who's going to the ER for whatever reason, uh, just being able to screen is really important in that way because then you can uh, catch someone who might be f- feeling suicidal early on and intervene uh, quickly. Um, so screening is a really important piece. Um, the other piece is, is related to intervention is is um, educating people about mental health issues, about suicide. Uh, so, for thinking about for teens specifically, since a lot of my research focuses on adolescents, is um, educating parents, educating school staff, and educating teens about how about signs of suicide and how can they help their friends or classmates if they're noticing signs of suicide or, or a severe mental health issue. Uh, so. Education is really important, and part of that education is also uh, destigmatizing mental health issues and mental health disorders uh, as a way to uh, reduce stigma related to that, and which then allow for more um, uh, healthy conversations about mental health. Um, and then, uh, f- for me, I th- given my research focuses on LGBTQ youth and youth of color, uh, thinking about how we also address prevention in terms of uh, uh, stigma related to racism, or, or um, racism as a form of stigma, or or homophobia or transphobia. So, how, what policies uh, that at schools, communities, um, counties, even and at the state level, and even at the federal level, that we could create to reduce racism, address structural racism, as well as reduce other forms of oppression like like heterosexism and, and transphobia. Uh, so, so policies are really important uh and and uh, there are some great policies out there but we need we need many more and of course
0: you know just this year alone some 500 bills or so have been introduced uh, that are considered anti-LGBTQ plus and people have to understand that those have a direct impact on uh, some of these young people who are uh you know really challenged and 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 feeling feeling bad it's it's uh, you know public policy matters doesn't it
2: it does, yeah. I appreciate you bringing that that statistic. Um, sadly, yeah, just in just this year, um, in 2023, as you mentioned, over 500 bills have been introduced uh, that target LGBTQ people, um, and over half of those target transgender people specifically uh, that deny them um, care, deny them uh, their ability to live their life with dignity, and and um, and we know from research that these types of policies, uh, even if they're not, they don't become laws, just even introducing them into uh, sta- legislators uh, w- by legislators um, actually has direct and negative impacts on uh, LGBTQ people's mental health um, and direct impacts to their suicidality. So, for example, some studies have shown that. Um, for LGBTQ people living in states that have more affirming laws and policies, like anti-discrimination laws and other um, or uh, laws that promote trans health and, and trans-affirmative health, LGBTQ people living in those states have better mental health uh, and less suicidality than LGBTQ people living in states that have discriminatory and oppressive laws.
0: And we are glad about that. Dr. Ethan Marish is a clinical psychologist and an associate professor and the director of the Lavender Lab in the Department of Psychology at the University of Maryland, College Park. Thank you for your time. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much for having me. And again, if you are having suicidal thoughts, call or text 988. Someone is there to help. And coming up, a conversation with a counselor who manages the 988 system in Central Maryland. Shauna Brock from Behavioral Health System Baltimore joins me on the other side of a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us.
1: I'm Al Waller.
0: I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihala Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, we're talking today about suicide prevention. If you are thinking about suicide, call or text 988. You'll connect with someone who can help. My next guest is Shauna Brock, a social worker who is the director of crisis services for Behavioral Health System Baltimore. She coordinates the 988 helpline in Baltimore City, Baltimore County, and Howard County, and Carroll County. Shauna Brock joins us on Zoom. Welcome to the show. Thanks for your time.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: So talk about the work of behavioral health system for Baltimore City. Um, as I understand it, you are not a service provider directly, um, but you help coordinate services that folks need.
3: That's right. Um, we are the local behavioral health authority for Baltimore City which means that we work with the state to manage mental health and substance use services um, that are either reimbursable for insurance or funded by grants. Um, We also investigate complaints about behavioral health services. And we partner with our stakeholders and the community to identify and address gaps in services. And right now, we're managing about $15 million in funding for behavioral health crisis services um, funded through state and federal funds for the region that you just mentioned, um, Baltimore City, Baltimore County, Howard and Carroll counties.
0: And talk about the 988 helpline. It's been up now here in Maryland for about a year, uh, and you all uh, were the folks that uh, that stood it up. Uh, tell, us, tell us how it works.
3: Sure. Um, I'll give a little history, as well as um, Tammy mentioned earlier. You know, 25 years ago, people didn't really talk about suicide, and that really started to change um, in the early 2000s. In 2005, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline was created. Um, There's been a lot of research about how these kind of uh, lifelines help people feel better, help them feel less suicidal. Um, And so a little over a year ago, the the 1-800 number that used to be the lifeline became 988. And so that's all over the country. Um, That 1-800 number still exists if people have it, or they can, if they have a local crisis number, those numbers still exist. But we're really trying to move people Towards nine eight eight, so that people can get services wherever they go in the country. Um, when you call nine eight eight, it's a, a series of sub networks, um, so it doesn't go to a national number. You're going to get connected to your local um, your local call center, uh, unless you have um, you press one for veterans, then you go to a national veterans line, or if you press two for Spanish, then you go to a Spanish speaking line. Or if you press uh, three for LGBTQ youth, you go to the Trevor Project, which has been around a long time, um, uh, that serves the LGBTQ plus youth. Um, and coming soon, if you dial in through a video phone, you'll be sent to a, a counselor who um, will counsel you in American Sign Language. So we're very excited that that service is coming soon.
0: Give us a sense of the scope of people who um, are calling, Nine eight eight, but but how many calls do you get in a typical month?
3: In our region, uh, we're getting uh, actually close to uh, two thousand calls on nine eight eight a month. Um, so that's in in our in the four jurisdictions that we talked about earlier. Um, statewide, it's about fifty one thousand co- calls a month, and that's up twenty eight percent over last year when um, it shipped over from the one eight hundred number to um, to 988.
0: And recently you added text as an option for people uh, using 988. Um yes. what what happens when you text 988 is it the same thing that happens uh, when you call 988?
3: Yeah, you're, you're you'll be you'll reach a um, a trained mental health counselor just like you would if you called. A lot of the people who use text tend to be younger, younger folks and um, those calls tend to be a little bit more, um, I guess people more in severe crisis tend to reach out through through text. Um, really you can call 988 or text 988 for, for any reasons. It doesn't have to be a suicidal crisis. We try to reach people before they get to that point. So if you are having feelings of grief, um, you're going through a divorce, you have work stress, any kind of um, If you have substance use concerns, any kind of concerns, if you just really need somebody to talk to, that's what we're here for. Um, All calls are free and confidential.
0: Um, Can you give us a sense of uh, the percentage of calls, for example, that are about suicidal ideation as opposed to other problems?
3: Yeah, about eight percent are from, is what we're seeing so far, are due to suicidal ideation.
0: But as you say, uh, the the nine eight eight helpline can be used for you know when when folks just need somebody to talk to and and to work some things out and to to talk things through. So your your counselors, uh, the, the folks who are answering these calls and answering these texts, um, but first of all, when it comes to text versus calling, is there a different approach to how the the counselor responds via text as opposed to calling?
3: Um, I, I think they're trained in under the same um, American uh, Society for Suicidality, um, the same strategies. I think they would use more abbreviations and that sort of thing as, as people tend to do. With text, but other than that, um, it's it's a conversation just like you would have on a phone. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh-huh. And they've
3: seen um, texts. Oh, sorry to interrupt. They've seen texts skyrocket. I mean, texts have gone up about a thousand percent since the wow. Since the
0: text a yeah. thousand percent. So yeah, people, since
3: it's quite an increase. It's still smaller than calls, but it's it's seen really a rapid growth.
0: Yeah. And uh, how do you train uh, your counselors who are responding? to these calls? Uh, Are these all, you know, people with master's degrees in social work? Uh, What kind of folks are on the other end of the line?
3: No, people come from all different backgrounds. Um, We have a lot of people who have uh, lived experience either with uh, mental health or substance use um, themselves. Um, They receive uh, intensive training according to national standards. Um, So 988, while it's run locally, there are national standards for it and so the counselors are trained according to those standards as well as things like working with LGBT youth, cultural sensitivity, um, a whole range of things and then they receive um, they shadow, they have to work for 15 hours um, supervised before they're able to be work unsupervised and then the, the calls while they're confidential they are monitored by the people who run the program for quality and um, that is supervised by a licensed social worker. Um, so there are always licensed social workers on staff, or licensed counselors, I should say, on staff um, with master's degrees that can, that can support the staff.
0: So 988 is a national program. Um, but do I have this right? Then when you dial 988, the, the call itself may be picked up by somebody in Kentucky or some other place, but they will immediately transfer you, get you to a person in Maryland. Is that right?
3: Uh, Not exactly. So um, about 90% of the calls are answered in state. So if you call 988 in Maryland, um, about 90% of the time you would be answered by someone local. Um, And then other times, it would go to a backup center. Um, The only time if you call, you know, counselors are trained to help you no matter where they are um, over the phone. If you did need someone to come out to your house, which is called a mobile response team, then they would connect you. If you ended up at a, at a national backup center, they would connect you locally to get you connected again.
0: We hear about staff shortages in any number of occupations, airline pilots, nurses, teachers, bus drivers. Um, are you able to attract enough counselors, folks, who can answer the, the 988 helpline? How are you doing in terms of staffing?
3: we're doing great staffing with the with the helpline um, like I said we've increased our in-state answer rate um, so we are really be uh, we have the staffing we feel like um, to answer those calls now after you go through those series of prompts um, we pick up um, I think the average is about 10 seconds um, it takes someone to pick up the phone so we're really staffed for 988 Where we've run into more trouble with staffing is for those in-person teams that would come out um, to your house which happens about maybe um, one in five calls might need that level of support Um, and we've had uh, more those are staffed by a licensed either counselor or social worker with a master's degree plus um, a certified peer counselor someone with lived experience and those we've had uh, um, more trouble hiring for. We've put a lot of new funding out to expand those services, and that's taken longer than we had hoped, um, just because we're having trouble finding people.
0: Yeah, um, it's a very specific, uh, you know, uh, set of skills and experience yes, that one exactly. would have to have. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. what what are the um, the sort of levels you mentioned? Mobile response. Sometimes you send people to the home of someone who's calling, who's in. Crisis in distress. Um, What are what are the other uh, possibilities? What what's the 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 sort of pool of resources that are uh, made available by the folks who are answering the nine eight eight helpline?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So, as I said, about eighty percent of the calls are really um, someone just needs someone to talk to. Um, Sometimes people want information and referral. We're here for that as well, so we can connect you to um, a a counselor in the community for ongoing care either for mental health or substance use sometimes uh, we uh, will have a same day or next day appointment available for you other times we will provide you with information to schedule that yourself Um, and so that's what a lot of people need Um, people who are in in more of a crisis situation are assessed by um, their, for their safety and um, whether they need a um, they would benefit i should say from someone coming out in person and talking to them and that's done with the person's consent uh, whether they want someone to come out um, to their home and some of those folks um, would want to go somewhere on an inpatient basis either to a hospital and we can help transport people to the hospital or they might want to go to a community-based uh, crisis um, services, and we can help uh, facilitate them getting into that as well. Uh,
0: um,
3: about what? Oh, I was just going to say about one percent of the callers, um, if they are in the process of um, a severe danger to themselves or other, life-threatening danger to themselves or other, then the call would be transferred to nine one one for. Um, law enforcement, and EMS to respond.
0: You mentioned about 8% of the calls that the 988 helpline responds to concerns suicide, people thinking uh, along those lines. Um, But then there's a whole host of other uh, issues, challenges that people are having. What about family members? What if you're not the person who's actually in crisis, but you are concerned about somebody else who is? Is uh, uh, a resource for those kinds of folks as well?
3: Yeah, so we definitely welcome people to call for advice on, on how to support loved ones. Um, we can provide, we can connect the person to um, support groups in the area. Um, NAMI, which is the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, is a great uh, resource for um, for families or Al-Anon, um, for, for families of, of people who have substance use um, issues, or there's a whole Posts resources that we can connect people to. And um, yeah, we're happy to, to talk to people about how they can support their loved ones.
0: You know, it took a long time, as I understand it, for folks to get used to dialing 911 for police emergencies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are people getting used to dialing 988 for mental health emergencies?
3: You know, it's been, uh, we've definitely seen an increase in, t- in calls. Uh, there's a lot more that we could do uh, for, for um, outreach. Um, we saw that 911 took about 10 years for people to kind of get used to that number. We're hoping we can do that in less time. But in recent survey, national surveys, um, just about 13% of people knew what 988 was and what 988, 988 was for um so we're trying to get the word out uh in our in central maryland and uh i'd love to direct people to 988helpline.org um where you can find out more and you can also print your own flyers um get other promotional material find some coping tips so we're we're spreading the word but we also it's really a grassroots effort as well um we have uh local community leaders that we call our 988 ambassadors um, who work with us to spread the word in their communities. And really, it just takes everybody to spread the word about it.
0: Well, we are happy to help spread the word today on Midday. Shauna Brock is the Director of Crisis Services at Behavioral Health System Baltimore. Thanks so much for your time and perspective. I'm grateful.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And again, if you are thinking about suicide, or if you just want to talk to somebody about a problem that you may have, call or text 988. Your call will be answered by someone who can help. So thanks to Tammy Ginsberg, Dr. Ethan Marish, and Shauna Brock. I appreciate it. I'm Tom Hall. Have a great day.